to the Philip K. Dick Book Club. In each episode of this podcast, I look at one of the works of Philip K. Dick while giving my commentary on it. In this episode, I'll be continuing my look at Philip K. Dick's 1959 novel, Time Out of Joint. This is one of Dick's early great novels and part of a series of novels that Dick wrote exploring shifting realities in the world. Now, the first of these novels where he does this is The Cosmic Puppets. There, the shifting reality was a result of cosmic forces and divine forces and kind of titanic universal struggles. The second novel was Eye, of the Sky, Eye in the Sky, and this was a much more intimate look at shifting realities based on individual subjectivities. And there he plays with the idea that each of us lives in our own distinctive mental realm that is impenetrable to other people. Now, in Time on a Joint, this theme is explored more politically as we find human beings consciously creating a false reality to exploit one person and to trick and confuse one person. But I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself here. The plot of Time on a Joint is one of Dick's more well-constructed, well, Time on a Joint is one of Dick's more well-constructed early novels in terms of its plot. It's a mystery with clear clues that do point somewhere. And when you go back and read it a second or third time, you find these clues and you see that this is all kind of there for you. As mysterious as it is the first time, I'm not sure it's a crackable, solvable crime like in an ideal mystery tale. But you do see those clues there. There's no really epiphany moments for the characters. Like in Eye in the Sky, when you think about like when the characters figured out they're living in someone's head, it's, it's kind of just given to them. It, it's It's granted to them. You know, I think at one point a character realizes we must be in someone else's head. And the question is whose head we're in. And then it's kind of just given to them on the wall, literally. Here, these conclusions that the characters draw are earned. And they're earned through a lot of struggle and challenges over time. Each realization is something that is really the result of a lot of effort by our characters. Truth slowly unfolds chapter by chapter. And the full picture is not revealed until... The final chapters of the novel. In fact, when we think we got, we've figured out what's going on, then we get some a new layer of of the mystery. <clears throat> now, our main characters are Regal Gum, a single man living a curious life as a constant winner of a newspaper contest called "Where Will the Little Man Little Green Man Be Next?" It's basically a, a grid of hundreds and hundreds of little squares, and his job is to find out where the little green man will be next. And the next answer, and there's like a clue he gets. But basically, he relies on patterns from the previous entries to figure this out. And it takes him hours and hours each day to submit this. But he makes a decent income from this. Like, I think, you know, it's like he gets a couple hundred dollars a week. He lives with his brother-in-law and his sister in their home and helps support the household. But basically, this is what he does. He's one of the few men in his town that doesn't have a standard regular job. Now, his other, the other main characters are his sister, Margot, his brother-in-law, Vic, and their child, Sammy. These characters are also strangely affected by the things happening to Raglegum. There's also an important neighbor, the, uh, some important neighbors, particularly Bill and Junie Black. 
So in the first few chapters of this novel, which I looked at in the previous episode, we're introduced to these characters. Vic works in a grocery store, Margot is a housewife, and Raggle spends most of his day preparing each day's entry into the newspaper contest. He's a local celebrity and the target of curiosity because he's one of the few men who does not work. We learn that there's strange things in the town that do not match our own. For instance, Uncle Tom's Cabin, the novel by Harriet Beecher Stowe, has only been recently published and is in a, a book in the month club selection. We learn also that there's strange, um, strange behavior by some of the characters. For instance, one night the blacks come to visit. The blacks are a neighbor, but Bill Black is a very awkward man who seems to never quite fit into his clothing. And he's almost like the cliche of 1950s America. He's dressed as a, as a cliche, although he's in the 1950s. He's constantly critical of 1950s popular culture as well, but he's very prone to accepting popular trends with awkward enthusiasm. Bill Black works for a very conventional and very traditional water department. Now that night, the night they, he visits, they're playing poker. Now Vic has a strange thing happen to him. He reaches for the light cord and finds that it's not there. Instead, he, he remembers the last minute that he has a wall switch. But this is a very bizarre event. And there's a couple of conversations in the early part of the novel where they talk about how, you know, this idea that maybe things change slightly. I think at one point, Junie Black talks to Raggle Gum about those times when you think there's an extra step, but there isn't. And you, you kind of you kind of fall almost fall down because you think there's going to be a third step but actually there's only two and that these things seem to happen a lot to people so it's these slight differences in things that that you 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 explain by saying it was a brain fart right it was just a you, know, you misremembered or something or you know you, you got in the wrong habit but this seems to happen seem to happen a lot now i think i mentioned this thing with the light cord happened to Ragel when i did the last episode but actually no it, it happened to vic now, the next day, Ragel was visited by someone from the newspaper who helps him revise his previous submission. Now, he turns out he has a special deal with the newspaper, allowing him to guess six times each day and to rank his guesses each day. So he fixes his submission. Now, he goes to blow off work that day, his work on the, on the submission, and instead visits Junie Black. And he flirts with her and even tries to seduce her while taking her to, a, to the pool for sunbathing. Failing in his effort at seduction, which is actually kind of humorous, he goes to the soda stand. And when he's there, the soda stand disappears, leaving in its place a strip of paper that just says soda fountain or soda stand or something. And this is not the first time it's happened. We're not privy to those previous times it's happened, but we're told by Regal Gum's internal monologue that this has happened to him before. So with that, we can now start the second the second part, the chap I'll look at chapters four, five, and six today. So part two of my review of Time Out of Joint. And hopefully we'll come to some answers about what's going on in this world. Why are things so odd? Why is it so conventional and predictable and, and recognizable as 1950s America? But why also are there so many weird things happening to our characters? Is Regal Gum going insane? Is he being manipulated? You know, who are the conspirators? And these are the kind of questions we can enter the second a uh, few chapters of this novel with. Okay, so uh, we begin, or we begin where we left off. Uh, Sammy Nielsen is digging around a, 
neighborhood place called the ruins it's a junkyard he's with some friends there too so this is typical kid behavior digging around in the junkyard or the kind of the rundown part of town having making some fun with it they're playing kind of war games they're building defensive structures and things and while he's there he sees a strange opening in the ground and begins to dig into it and then the scene cuts off now meanwhile Ragel is telling his brother-in-law that he thinks he's going to abandon the newspaper contest he, he believes he's about to have a nervous breakdown and he really is freaking out about the things that are happening to him he offers to help short term with the money but he states that he'll likely move out as soon as he's made his decision and he thinks he just can't handle it anymore and he starts to actually think he needs to start taking some philosophy courses to help get a bearing on what has been happening to him and dick here poses a rather interesting question about whether we should embrace therapy or philosophy as a solution to our problems and i know there's still ongoing debates about that this is something dick would of course explore in his own life is he would try psychoanalysis and therapy and at various times he would really try to explore philosophy it's, it's interesting that dick was thinking about this this these two options this early in his career a decade before he really starts to well i guess 1973 is when he has the real strange experiences that lead him to read the ex, to write the exegesis now, during dinner that, that night, Ragel thinks about the philosophy of semiotics and the philosophy of naming. Now, as I understand it, this is a school of philosophy that really explores the meaning of signs and how we're able to communicate with each other through signs. He never really calls it that in the story, but it's basically it's, he thinks about signs. He thinks about, you know, meaning because he's getting these um, slips of paper when these items break down in front of him and he gets these pieces of paper with a name so he's thinking of, of course about the relationship between the name on the thing the name on the piece of paper and the thing as it actually actually exists so he's starting to think philosophically about these things that are happening to him and now he's got a bunch of these small pieces of paper and we it's revealed just how many he has now and it's actually a small stack of these different items so this thing that's happened to him when he was with Junie black in at, at the pool had happened to him several times before. Now, Ragel believes that part of his problem is Junie Black, and he tells Vic that, and Vic immediately scolds him for trying to break up a marriage, and he actually gives him the line that, yeah, Bill Black is a bit of a doofus and, and a fool, but it's the institution that matters, not the individuals that, that matter, and you should lay off Junie Black. But so Ragel doesn't quite know where the source of his problem is. Is he going insane? Is he just under stress from work? Is he kind of falling in love with Junie Black? And that's actually an interesting change in his character. In the first chapter, it's established that very clearly that he he does he's not in love with Junie Black. Maybe it's the second chapter. But by the third chapter, he's trying to sleep with her and hitting on her quite aggressively. Now, anyways, they're they're talking more about what their future may be. They're kind of hiding this initially from Margot, but she'll know soon enough that that he's thinking of leaving. But around this time, Sammy comes back with the stuff he found in the ruins. And what he found were more of these slips of paper, like someone had dumped all this paper in this junkyard. And it has the same font and the same look as the card that Regal Gum has been collecting. So Regal and Vic run out to the ruins to find some more stuff. And they do, they bring back a bunch of old magazines and old phone books. They bring them back and begin exploring what they find. And first, the first thing they notice is that the phones and the, the numbers in the phone book don't make any sense at all. It's, and what's the solution to this? Well, maybe the phone book was really old 
and their old phone books and those numbers and extensions are gone. But everything doesn't make sense. So it's a bit strange that the whole phone book would be like outdated. There'd still be some numbers that would work. And they don't remember numbers being changed in recent years. So they just try to call the numbers and they, they go through the operator and they try to call the numbers and they don't get anywhere. They're able to talk to an operator, but they're not able to get any luck in actually getting carried through to the numbers. So they give up on that and they set aside the phone book and then they start to look through the magazines and they find this these pictures of a woman, of a beautiful woman that through the stories that they read is identified as Marilyn Monroe. Now, none of them seem to know who she is. Now, as I, as I talked about in the previous episode and in my recap of last episode, there, this is not the first time this has happened. Uh, Dick gave us a very clear clue that this, this is one of the rules of the world we're living in. And that was when we learned that Harry Beecher Stowe's Uncle Tom's Cabin had just been published. And it's been presenting as a historical fiction, not as an actual historical document, a novel from the 19th century. So the thing about Marilyn Monroe in... And this is that none of them know, know her, right? So they're all amazed they don't know this woman because the magazine talks about her as a major movie star and a major celebrity. So it's not like it's a nobody, at least according to the magazine. And yeah, one person might not know a major celebrity, but three or four people not to know it, especially in the 1950s culture of celebrities. So Vic suggests to Raggle that he approach this as a mystery that can be solved by collecting enough evidence. So at, at this point, the the book sort of becomes a, a little bit of a mystery novel and Ragel's job then becomes to collect collect the evidence and, and follow the clues. So uh, after this, Bill Black goes to the newspaper offices the next day to talk to Mr. Lowry. Now we met Mr. Lowry before. This is the man who came to Ragel Gum's house to clarify his submission the previous day. And at this point, we learn that basically whatever is going on to Regal has something to do with Bill Black. Um, he talks about the numbers that Regal called the previous night. And so it's, it's known to them, to the capital T, them, that Regal had called this operator. Of course, all outside lines were being monitored. At least it shows that these outside calls are being monitored. They talk about various theories such as their operation being infiltrated or maybe that Vic just came across a list of old restaurants that he found and tried to call them. Now, none of these answers are very satisfying to Bill Black. He's really worried about something very much more devastating taking place. He considers the fact that it's possible that Ragel Gum is becoming sane again. So meanwhile, Ragel Gum has been thinking all along that he's going insane. But Vic's worry, or no, sorry, Bill Black's worry is that Ragel is going sane, so it's 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 inverted. The the fear, but whatever is happening to Ragel and his family, it's clear that Bill Black seems to be a major part of it. And I'm I'm trying to not jump to the conclusion at this point. It's hard not to talk about it with without this conclusion in mind. But if you if you've read this far, you know that there's some kind of conspiracy or some kind of agenda, and Bill Black is a part of it. Now, on his way home, Bill almost shoplifts, forgetting that he's supposed to pay for things in this world. So this is another clue that, that Bill's really not of this world in the way that Vic and, and Margot are and Sammy. So Bill, he just takes some pens and then the guy's like, oh, no, you're supposed to pay. And so he pays. He goes to talk to Junie about Ragel and she's very defensive. She thinks he's mad about flirting with him and maybe possibly starting an affair with him. Bill doesn't care about that stuff. He but he wants to know other things about Ragel. 
And then a woman comes to the door advertising an evening program in civil defense in CD. And she tries to recruit the blacks and they turn her down, but they send her on to regal gum. This woman is Mrs. Keitelbein. And she goes to the next house, uh, which is the Nielsen's, and she sees Regalgum there. And then there she explains the importance of civil defense to Regalgum. Of course, this is the 1950s environment, and civil defense is a big part of the culture of the 1950s. It's something Dick explored in the short story, Foster Your Dead. And here's what she says about it. CD works whenever there's a disaster from floods or windstorms. Of course, it's the hydrogen bomb that we're so concerned about, especially now that the Soviet Union has those new ICBM missiles. What we want to do is train individuals in each part of the city to know what to do when disaster strikes. Administer first aid, speed the evacuation, know what food is probably contaminated and what food isn't. For instance, Mr. Gum, each family should have a seven-day store of food, including a seven-day store of fresh water. Now, Regal Gum is initially not that interested in doing it, but he's talked into it. And then he says he'll be able to come maybe a few hours a week to these civil defense classes and he can be part of this. And it, you get the sense that maybe Regal's a bit bored. He wants to move out of this job of doing the contest. So maybe this is a way for him to have a side project. Now, now he has a side project, but also Regal then talks to Sammy about his side project, which is a crystal radio. And so there's a lot of different side projects these people are engaged in. Regal has the mystery. Sammy has the crystal radio. Regal now has the civil defense thing. So um, it's, it's kind of a little bit of fun that Dick has here with these different side projects that everyone has. And it's, it's the fuzz, it gets fuzzier and fuzzier what people's real job is and what their real obligation is. Vic then talks to Regal about his own project, which is investigating the strange material, the strange material they found and this mystery that seems to be happening to him. Regal, however, has been too busy with the contest, he says, to really do much more investigating. Sammy then begins a strange conversation about the people who are spying on them and out to get them. And we can take this as just Sammy being fully of the Cold War. And again, we've seen this in the story Foster Your Dead, this idea that there's people who were raised fully in the Cold War who emerge as paranoids because of it. And Sammy seems to have a bit of this in him. He says, the enemy, that's everywhere around us. I don't know their names, but they're everywhere. I guess they're Reds. And then to the boy, Raggle said, how are they duping us? With confidence, Sammy said, they got their dupe guns trained on us, dead center. So that's, that's, that's just kind of a shout out to kind of the paranoid culture of, of the 1950s. But what we also learn here is that Sammy's vigilant. He plays at war. He, he's made, building his radio. He's ready. He's ready to look out for the people who got their dupe guns aimed on them. So Bill Black comes to the house with the pens he claimed he got for free but needs to give away for legal reasons. In fact, he picked them up at the store just before this scene happened. The Nielsen's then immediately ask him about Marilyn Monroe. Do they know this woman? Bill quickly covers and explains that he knows all about Marilyn Monroe and has even seen some of her movies and mentioned some of the movies talked about in the newspaper article. He also blows off the old phone book, but he takes it anyways. And he says, oh, I'm going to use it to find some of Junior's old classmates and kind of look up my old friends. Now, Bill Black rushes home and immediately calls Lowry to tell him about the Marilyn Monroe thing and about the phone book. And the explanation we get is that Marilyn Monroe just was not fitted in. So it's pretty clear now that Bill Black is part of this conspiracy to create this false front. Now, the nature of it and what the real world is like, we don't know. But whatever Regal's living in is false and constructed. 
And it's been filled in with details from the real world, but not all the details have been filled in. So Marilyn Monroe was one of the things that didn't get fitted in. Black begins to wonder what would have happened if he had looked up Regal Gum's own name. And so they do that. And they find that Regal didn't, he didn't call his own number or anything, but they look it up in the phone book and they find that Regal Gum has an entry and an address and a number for business. Now, later on, Sammy is working on his crystal radio set. We already know that a few people, that few people in Regal's world seem to have radios. And this is another break from our world, our 1950s from the one presented in this novel. In the real 1950s, everyone had radios in their homes and radio program was a big thing. Here, radios have been phased out for televisions completely. And so radios are kind of throwbacks. Why is this? Well, the reason for this is because apparently Bill Black and the other conspirators don't want Regal Gum and others using radios and, and listening to radios because of what they might pick up. But Sammy, because Regal has this knowledge from his time in the war, he helped Sammy make the crystal radio set. And now he has it working. So Sammy works on it in his clubhouse. He's got this clubhouse, which is fully prepared for the Cold War. It's got even a sign banning communists and fascists and Nazis from visiting. So as he's playing with this radio, he begins to hear these strange conversations that he can't really make sense of. Some are banal. Some are kind of full of military speak and codes and numbers. But something's going on for sure. Regal, meanwhile, finishes his entries for the day and he goes to the post office. And on his way back, he decides to visit the house of Mrs. Keilbeam, who is the woman who runs the civil defense class. And his pretense for visiting is he wants to ask about when the class meets and who else has signed up. And she dodges the question about who else has signed up and says she lost the sheet with all the names. Regal, however, is worried that he'll be the only one attending this class and that he's being singled out. And increasingly, Regal Gum begins to think that he's the center of this world and everything is happening around him for him. And that's why he's curious about other people. And especially, in, we'll see in the next episode, he becomes increasingly obsessed with this idea that he's really the center of everyone's attention and everyone's eyes are on him. He does recruit, she does recruit Regal into helping move a desk with her teenage son. And they move the desk upstairs, and then the talk shifts to the contest. Regal talks about his military career. She's happy that Regal can bring this contribution to the civil defense course. They talk again about what Regal had done before with other people, but you know how hard is it to do his job working on the radio on the newspaper contest, and he insists that it's hard work. And basically, they have a back and forth conversation on various topics, and then she shows him a model. A fort, a model fort of a Mormon fort that will be used in the class. And so it's kind of an odd aside that they have. It becomes important later on in the story why they had this aside. But at this point, it's it's a bit weird why he came up there. Obstensibly, it was to figure out when the class would, would meet and to find out who else is going to be in the class. Now, at work, Vic does an interesting psychological experiment. Now, he works in a grocery store. And so he asks them... He says, I'm going to make a loud noise and then I'm going to give you a command and I want you to do it. And this is the, the experiment. So he actually yells out the command, run, and then makes a noise. He does it in the wrong order. And some one of the people actually complains that he did it in the wrong order. But he, the command is to run. And now he, he expects everyone's going to run in different directions or all run for the door. But instead, they all run towards a pillar, which he thinks is really odd. He's like, okay, I would understand if they all ran for the door and I'd understand if they all ran just randomly. But to all run to the same place is bizarre. 
Now, before we can analyze this, though, Vic gets a call from Margot telling him to come home right away. And, and she explains they've been listening to strange voices on the radio and they need his advice and thoughts on it. But Vic does have time to think about his experiment. And he says they should have run randomly, not to one place. And what this proves is that there's some kind of common experience or framework or common training, something that these four workers have in common that needs to be explained or exists there in the background. He realizes there may be more banal explanations, but he's still a bit concerned about this. He tries to work it out in his mind and think about this, and he connects it to what's been happening to him and Regal in recent days. He thinks that maybe everything is just a facade, and he starts to play with his idea while he's on the bus. And to one degree, this is a really profound moment in the, in the novel when Vic starts to realize that the world he lives in is fake. Um, but it's also a very playful time where he's just in the commute and he has nothing to do and he's just kind of mulling over th ideas, thinking about philosophy and starts playing experiments with his mind and stuff. And it's, it's things we all do, but here it's given a very profound significance. So he thinks that if everything's a facade, maybe he can just will things to vanish or reveal their true nature. And he actually tries this on the bus. He tries to kind of force the bus into and out of existence. And the first attempt, he just kind of puts himself to sleep and he... After dozing for a while, he tries again, and this time something really does happen. Quote, maybe he thought if I just squeeze my eyes darn near shut, just a crack of light shows, and I concentrate like hell on this bus, and the weary, hefty old woman shoppers in their bulging shopping bags, and the chattering schoolgirls, and the clerks reading the evening paper, and the red neck driver, maybe they'll go away. The squeaking seat underneath me, the smelly fumes every time the bus starts up, the jolting, the swaying, the ads over the window. Maybe they'll just fade away. Now he tries this and he, he, he kind of drifts off. Self-hypnosis, he declared, nodding into his doze like the other passengers around him, heads rolling together in time to the motion of the bus. Left, right, forward, sideways, left, right. The bus stopped for a light. The heads remained at an even angle. Back as the bus started, forward as the bus stopped. Fade away. Fade, fade. And then those half-closed eyes, he saw the passengers fade away. Lo and behold, he thought, how pleasant it was. No, it wasn't fading at all. The bus and his passengers hadn't faded a bit. Throughout the bus, a deep change had taken place. And like his experiment in the store, it didn't fit. It's not what he'd wanted. Damn you, he thought, fade away. The sides of the bus became transparent. He saw it under the street, the sidewalks, the stores, thin support trucks, the skeleton of the bus, metal girders, an empty hollow box. No other seats, only a strip of length of planking on which upright featureless shapes like scarecrows had been propped. They were not alive. The scarecrows lulled back and forth, back. Ahead of him, he saw the driver. The driver had not changed. The red neck, strong wide back, driving a hollow bus. So this is what happens to Vic. So I guess that does it. This is a good place to stop. And that, that kind of does it for the second part. I'm going to do this in five parts. So this is... My second part of Time Out of Joint covers chapters four, five, and six, if you're reading along. We learn a lot more about the world that Regal Gum occupies, although we don't get any clear answers. It's apparently false, somewhat controlled by Bill Black, but there's also mystical elements. Things can disappear in front of people's eyes. The NPCs in the story seem to have some common experiences or common programming, if you want to put it that way. And we see on the bus that Vic is able to sort of will through meditation people to some people disappear, but not all. There are strange voices coming from the radio, suggesting that there's kind of a world out there, people spying on them, people observing them. And the world that they're in is very incomplete. 
Things from the 1950s in our own world, such as home radios and Marilyn Monroe, don't exist. But like the 1950s that we know from our history, the world is obsessed with security and civil defense. And young people are raised to be obsessed with this. Now, it's still hard to analyze the story because we don't have that much to work with. We're like Vic and Regal grasping at straws and thinking that there must be some philosophical solution to this problem. It certainly seems to be a delusion of sorts, but since it's happening to more than one person, there must be something more to it. In a sense, it's like eye in the sky. Is it like that? Is it a shared delusion? But Bill Black doesn't seem to share this delusion, so it can't be shared. In fact, he seems to be a conspirator. We'll be much closer to the answers of what's going on after the next episode. So thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Philip K. Dick Book Club. If you have any comments about Time Out of Joint, please send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. And I'll be back with part three of my review of Time Out of Joint. That leaving dies, that leaving dies.